Welcome to Mental Health in Focus, a platform for talking all things mental health. Expand your knowledge by joining our expert hosts as they go beyond the 101. Hello and welcome to this first episode in the new podcast series, Emergency Workers Responder Assist. The series is a partnership between Phoenix Australia's Responder Assist, which is the Centre for Excellence in Emergency Worker Mental Health, and the Mental Health Professionals Network. My name's Mark, Mark Creamer. I'm a clinical psychologist with a long interest in first responder mental health. I'm also a professorial fellow in Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne, and I will be your host for this series. We're going to explore a range of issues associated with first responder mental health. We'll look at what kinds of problems they might experience, what the organisations can do, what we as health professionals can do as well. And we're going to end up with our final episode, hearing the stories of those with lived experience. But in this first episode, we're going to set the scene, as it were. We're going to look at the kinds of problems reported by first responders. We'll look at how common they are and whether there are any particular risk and protective factors and so on. And to assist me with that task in today's episode, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce my co-host, Professor Nicole Sadler. Nicole is a clinical psychologist from Phoenix, Australia. She served in the Psychology Corps of the Australian Army for 20 years, and she's got loads of experience working with both emergency services and military personnel. And at Phoenix, Australia, she has been leading the establishment of Responder Assist. Nicole is joining me today from Canberra via Zoom. So welcome, Nicole. Nicole, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mark. I'm delighted to be joining you today. Great. Now, let's start with this Centre of Excellence. You're now heading up the Centre of Excellence in First Responder Mental Health. Can you just tell us a little bit about perhaps what it is and why we need it? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Look, Responder Assist is a Victorian-based initiative which is seeking to address issues that we see in emergency workers across Australia. Uh, Back in 2021, the Victorian government funded Phoenix Australia to set up this cross-sector program and the aim is to improve mental health outcomes for emergency service workers, whether they be paid, volunteered or retired from service. And Responder Assist recognises that the mental health of emergency workers is in fact different from what we see in the general community. And this has implications for our mental health providers. We know emergency service workers are professional, they're dedicated, they usually would describe their work as being meaningful and rewarding, but the work can also be challenging and demanding. There is this higher risk of repeated exposure to trauma for some And of course, then these occur in the context of all those other organisational, occupational, environmental, personal life stresses that occur to people throughout life. And these roles have then been associated with higher incidences of a range of different mental health conditions. And then what we see is despite the availability of of evidence-based treatments, emergency workers don't always seek help for these mental health concerns. And unfortunately, even when they do seek help, it's often when these concerns are more entrenched and complex to treat. And then they don't always receive the specialist uh, support that they require. And we also know that they're a unique population in terms of their risk and protective factors. So we need to be making sure the treatments are taking those those factors into account. So what Responder Assist is seeking to do, how we look to address those issues is through a focus on how do we increase access to evidence-based treatments? How do we build the capability and the confidence of health practitioners throughout Victoria to effectively treat emergency workers? And how do we also improve our understanding of the treatment options that work best in this sector? 
It sounds like a wonderful initiative, I must say. Um, just to clarify, it is only for Victoria at this stage, although I think I'm right in saying, aren't I, that there is a fair bit of material on the Responder Assist website that can be accessed by anyone uh, across Australia. Yes, that, that, that's right. So um, on the website, there's information for um, providers, there's information for emergency service workers themselves and the agencies, and also for family members. So lots of information that anyone uh, across Australia uh, can access. And of course, as I've already said, these are issues that we see not just within Victoria. And we know that there's a lot of interest nationally in, in how this uh, particular program and initiative, what sort of impacts we can have. Well, good luck with it, Nicole. Good luck with it. And, and certainly we'll be hearing that term responder assist quite a lot through the series. But I'd like now, if I could, just to take you back in your career a little bit. And we, as I mentioned earlier, you did work for a long time in the military. I guess there are some similarities between the emergency services population and, and uh, military populations. Yeah, we see lots of similarities and particularly to those uh, organisations that are paid and have uniformed roles. What we see sort of this, this sense of service, the pride and wanting to serve the community and to do something that is rewarding and meaningful. And often a sense of self and purpose is very much tied to that role and the meaning of that role to them. We see that there is this risk for many, not necessarily all, but of exposure to potentially traumatic events. And, and this occurs in the context of all those other organisational and occupational factors. So we do see an increased risk in terms of mental health concerns in, in both of these types of populations. And we also see stigmas and barriers to care. Not great in terms of putting their hand up and asking for support because they're concerned about the impact on their career, but they're also really concerned about letting themselves down and letting their teens down. And we also see this increasing evidence that you need to have a whole of career, whole of workforce approach to this. It's not just those people in the frontline uniform roles that get impacted, administrative roles, part-time roles, they also can report these increasing incidents of mental health uh, concerns. I think it's a really important point, isn't it? So we tend to focus a lot on trauma, but it isn't just trauma. That's an important part of it. But there's a whole lot of other workplace stressors that in some ways are unique to this type of organisation. The other thing I was going to say, and it is changing, of course, but it has been traditionally predominantly male occupations, both of them. And let's face it, men are not particularly good at sticking their hand up and asking for help or admitting that they're not coping too well. So that, that's another factor. Another point very quickly I wanted to see your opinion on one of the things that strikes me as a difference is that uh, emergency worker population are much more likely to go home at night as it were to family and friends and so on than our military population I know sometimes they do but clearly not on deployment and so on and I'm thinking that maybe there are pros and cons to that there's good things in terms of perhaps accessing support and so on and, and having a real break from work but let's face it I guess sometimes home life can be a bit stressful too would you agree with that? Yeah it's a great point often in the military people be moved away from their primary social support networks and they have to create uh, these, these new sources of support but in the emergency workers they're often more stable but as you're saying that can be really difficult if they're feeling like they are putting their own family at risk in terms of exposing them to stories or their own experiences and that can be a stigma and a barrier to help seeking for individuals as well they they can shut themselves off or deny what's going on for themselves because they don't want to be having a negative 
negative impact upon their significant others. So as you're saying, you know, we know social support is so vitally important, but people have to be accessing that social support for it to be meaningful and helpful. They do, don't they? And I think also the idea of negative social support, as it were. So if the person is coming home to, for example, a partner who's critical or unsympathetic or demanding or whatever, actually that can feed into problems of managing the traumas that they've experienced at work. Absolutely. And just the other point I wanted to make is that, of course, that the difference between the military and emergency services is that many of these are volunteers and if they're not doing well, they just stop turning up. So it's much harder for the work group to know and to respond to mental health concerns. And that pressure and responsibility is put back onto the individual and to family and significant others. Yeah. I'm sure that our guests today will have opinions about a variety of these things. So let's, without further ado, introduce him. David Lawrence is Professor of Mental Health at the School of Population Health at Curtin University in Perth. And David was the project leader for Answering the Call, which was a really large national study conducted by Beyond Blue, looking at the mental health and well-being of first responders. And he's currently leading a study of the impacts of the 2019-20 bushfire season, again, on the well-being of first responders. I spoke to David earlier from Perth via Zoom. Hello, David, and thanks very much for joining us today. Perhaps we could start by looking at the kinds of problems that first responders report in your research studies. What have you found? Thanks, Mark. So a few years ago, we did the Answering the Call study on behalf of Beyond Blue and also with funding from the Bushfire and Natural Hazards Cooperative Research Centre. So that study set out to look at uh, the types of uh, mental health issues that were experienced across the emergency services sector. So we looked at police, fire and rescue, rural fire, ambulance and state emergency services, employees and volunteers. The most common uh, issues that we see in terms of mental health and wellbeing in the sector are anxiety, depression and PTSD. While we talk a lot about PTSD, it, uh, it's the case that anxiety and depression are probably twice as common. In terms of the sorts of symptoms or uh, experiences that people have, you know, sometimes they're quite specific things like replaying events or living experiences. But often there are more general uh, symptoms such as uh, difficulty sleeping, difficulty focusing, high levels of uh, suspiciousness and low levels of trust that can uh, really impact on people's ability to uh, maintain uh, effective relationships, things like that. I was going to lead on and ask about that a bit more, but I think the point you make there is a really important one, isn't it? That there is sometimes, I think, a, a danger for us as clinicians to think, you know, the person's been through trauma and they've got some problems, must be PTSD. But I agree entirely that we should be looking at least as much, if not more so, for depression and other anxiety and so on. So you started to touch on it there, but I'm, I'm interested in how much these kinds of problems do impact on the person's social functioning, so their ability to relate to their loved ones or their, or their friends, and also their occupational functioning at work. Do they have a big impact? Well, absolutely. They can have uh, very significant impacts both at work and at home, and particularly in terms of the impact that it can have on close and intimate relationships. We know that you know, anxiety, depression, and PTSD, you know, sadly, one of the factors of these uh, problems is they tend to to steal away from us the things that other people find most engaging in us. And uh, you know that's one of the issues why the stigma associated with mental health can be so difficult to break down. But particularly for you know, police who work in a sector where having a high degree of suspiciousness is part of the effective tools of the trade, having a high degree of uh, suspiciousness of people who you would uh, normally trust can be uh, significantly damaging. 
We also see a really big issue in the sector is how people cope and deal with their emotions. And one of the big issues across all parts of the sector is the use of alcohol. And I'm not talking specifically about the amount of alcohol that people consume, but uh, the way that uh, they uh, sometimes use alcohol as the means of coping with difficult emotions or difficult feelings and suppressing those feelings and then not taking any further appropriate action to try and handle the problems so that they're experiencing so that people often wait a very long time before they actually seek uh, effective help uh, for their problems. Absolutely. And in fact, we're going to talk in episode three, we're going to talk about some of the clinical challenges and I'm sure we'll be talking about that issue of alcohol, which can create some difficult clinical decisions, I guess. But um, I'm also interested in the point you made, which is a very good one about the sort of suspiciousness that that actually serves perhaps some serves some of these people quite well in some areas of their life but when it's transferred and and as a clinician i find often quite difficult to engage this group because of that suspiciousness and it takes a while to develop that trust and understandably absolutely one of the issues that we see that often comes up in the workplace is people who are developing problems of anxiety depression ptsd display these sorts of uh, symptoms in the workplace and they're perceived as being management problems or workplace uh, problems or the person is uh, difficult to work with. And uh, one of the real issues I think that we need to try and address is making sure that the people who have supervisory and management responsibilities in the sector, that they have enough mental health literacy to be able to identify what are ordinary uh, problems in the workplace and what are likely signs of people developing issues, particularly the way that they present in the workplace uh, changes over the length of their careers. I think that's a a real issue that needs to be tackled. I I agree entirely. I think that's a crucial point, isn't it? That often it'll be their colleagues or their supervisors that recognise changes in behaviour. This is not what it used to be like. And the importance of us recognising that as perhaps an indicator there's something else going on, not just see it as being difficult or whatever, but to be brave enough to ask the question, I suppose, if, if everything's okay. Now, your research looked at, I guess, things like the prevalence of these problems. How common do you think they are? I mean, have we got an idea of what proportion of emergency service workers might be suffering mental health issues? Yes, yeah, so that is uh, one of the key objectives of the Answering the Call study, was to estimate uh, prevalence of mental health problems in the sector. And uh, we've identified that it is probably the uh, highest uh, risk uh, sector in terms of uh, prevalence of uh, mental health uh, problems. Uh, perhaps uh, on a par with the the military, but otherwise not aware of uh, too many other workplaces that have uh, such high levels. So we found that over 10% of employees across uh, the sector met diagnostic criteria for uh, PTSD, most likely, including having a significant functional impairment associated with their problems, which is over twice the uh, population average. We also looked at a measure called psychological distress, the uh, Kessler 10 uh, scale, and found that one in three people in the sector had high or very high levels of psychological distress, much higher than the population rate of about uh, one in eight. And uh, very high psychological distress are very strong indicators of uh, needing uh, effective uh, mental health uh, support. So we know that uh, while the majority of people who work in the emergency services uh, sector have positive mental health and well-being. It is uh, definitely the case that uh, while for an individual, it's not inevitable that you will develop mental health problems at an organisational level. 
there is a degree of inevitability that there will be mental health issues associated with the nature of the work and uh, the uh, it's something that we really have to take seriously. Absolutely. And that figure of 30% scoring high on the K-10, and I'm sure that's a measure many of our listeners will be familiar with, as you say, that really does put that group at high risk of mental health problems and also perhaps an indication that this is a group with whom we should be intervening fairly assertively, I suppose, if we can pick it up. And it's a nice, easy measure to use, of course, yes. the K-10, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Having said that, the point you ended up with there, I think, is also very important, which is that a large number of our emergency workers do not develop mental health problems. And I wonder if you you know or you can speculate a little bit about what we think are the, the risk and protective factors for this group. Well, we've identified quite a, a range of factors, and that was also another one of the key aims of the Answering the Call study, to look at both individual and uh, workplace uh, factors associated with positive and negative uh, mental health outcomes. We know that uh, some of the things that are associated with mental health are things that we've understood for a a long period of time, looking after yourself in terms of having a good work-life balance, getting proper sleep, exercising, having good social support. While these things are not new in terms of uh, finding out about, we do also know that there are specific barriers in the emergency services sector that can make some of these things quite difficult. The high proportion of uh, shift work makes it uh, difficult for people to get a good night's sleep on a regular basis. And we know that in uh, some of the sectors, the amount of uh, work that is uh, coming in, there's always pressure on, and particularly you know, you know, ambulance on a Friday, Saturday night in uh, pretty much every major city at the moment in a situation where there's just job after job after job after job. And people who work in the emergency services aren't the sort of people who are going to say, okay, I'm done for the day. I'm not going to help anyone else. If there are people in need, then they will go and attend to those uh, issues. So making sure that we have effective resourcing is another really important issue. But one of the questions that people asked us uh, fairly regularly after the answering the call was say, can you tell us which of the agencies across the country was doing the best and what do they do and what can we learn from them? And when we looked at that, we found out that you know pretty much all agencies across the, the country, across all the sectors, do have high uh, rates of mental health problems. But what we saw is there's really a lot of difference between individual workplaces, more so than there is between individual agencies. And we believe that it's not only important for organisations to have effective mental health policies and procedures, but for them to be embedded into the workplace at the station level or brigade level or whatever. And one of the huge uh, things that sits as a barrier in this uh, sector is just the culture. There's a culture of stoicism, a culture of you have to be strong to work in the emergency services. You're the people who help. You don't need help yourself. And uh, it's really seen as uh, something that you just don't talk about. Traditionally, people have just not talked about emotional problems in the emergency services at all. That is slowly changing, but we still need to see a lot more change. And while there is a high degree of stigma, people are concerned to talk about uh, mental health issues because they're concerned what might happen to their careers, say. We heard a lot of stories across the sector that it's more than just a perception. A lot of people told us about experiences that they themselves had had or colleagues or friends had had where they'd lost the ability to do uh, operational work, been moved into uh, roles that uh, weren't seen as uh, very attractive, perhaps uh, lost their uh, jobs completely, had other negative impacts. I think until we get to a stage where we see that workplaces not only 
talk about supporting mental health and wellbeing, but see examples on a regular basis of people who have mental health issues, recover from those mental health issues and proceed to have positive uh, careers after that, that we will be able to change that uh, perception and uh, give people a feeling of safety to be able to talk about their issues and seek help without this uh, you know, constant fear that it could be the end of their careers or uh, have a very significant impact on their career. Couldn't agree more, couldn't agree more. And I think the last couple of points that you made, I mean, that, that whole question about the culture and people's willingness to acknowledge problems, all that kind of stuff. And the point before you made, which was actually rather than differences across organisations, it's differences within that are important. And, you know, I suspect the importance of kind of unit leadership and unit morale. And if you've got your boss giving the right messages and doing the right things and so on, and that spreads to the team, you've got a much better chance of surviving than if you've got a boss who's giving the wrong messages. That, yeah. Absolutely. Social support and informal support are one of the most important uh, protective factors for mental health and wellbeing. Having a supportive boss, having supportive colleagues, having an open and inclusive uh, workplace and a workplace environment where you feel comfortable to be able to talk about the issues that occur in your work and are able to discuss them without fear is absolutely crucial, I think. And of course, while these changes may take place at the kind of local level, the team level or the whatever, we also need, don't we, a a really strong commitment by the organisation as a whole and from the highest levels that mental health is important. We are taking this seriously. That's that's an important message, isn't it, to get across? Absolutely. As well as doing the survey, at the end of the survey, we asked uh, people if they had anything else that they would like to uh, tell us about their mental health and uh, well-being. And we had over 4,000 people who told us various things and we did qualitative analysis of the stories. And while there's a great uh, diversity of uh, experiences that people had, one of the big themes that uh, came out of that was a lot of people see that the workplace mental health uh, policies are ticking a box or being seen as trying to do the right thing rather than actually believing that the organisation is truly committed to supporting mental health and wellbeing. So making that as a cultural change is difficult and challenging, but uh, very important. Quite, quite. Well, that leads me on to what is essentially my final question. Of course, we could spend the whole podcast on this. Um, I'm interested in whether you've got any thoughts, having studied the population a lot, about how we might improve the situation. And clearly that issue of addressing the culture is going to be, I imagine, crucial in your answer. Mm -hmm. But are there there other things that you think we should also be looking at? Absolutely. So the Answering the Call study came out with a series of recommendations for the sector and Beyond Blue has been working with the sector. And I know that across the sector, all agencies are working on putting in place new programs and things are definitely changing. I think we have to recognise the fact that uh, change does take time and we can't go from almost uh, zero workplace mental health maybe 10 or 20 years ago to uh, perfect, uh, strong, resilient, super functioning uh, mentally healthy workplaces overnight. There is a a process of reform that will uh, continue to take time and effort. We think coming out of the survey, there isn't just one or two things that we need to do. We aren't, you know, at that stage, there are still quite significant things that need to be addressed along the entire continuum or pathway of uh, mental health, if you will. So if you uh, think about, you know, broad level prevention and early intervention issues right through to more effective uh, support for people who have serious mental health problems who are no longer able uh, to work. One of the clearly uh, standout findings of the survey was just how many people had absolutely negative experiences of the workers' compensation system. There have been some moves to start uh, reforming that, but that's quite clearly important for people who have serious mental health problems. But we want to be able to put in place reforms that 
stop people getting to that stage. And, and the point you make there about it being a kind of whole of career thing, it's not just something you wait to a certain point. This should be from day one when they join the organisation all the way through. There are some things, of course, we're not really going to be able to change, which are some of the things like the shift work, perhaps the workload, although hopefully we can do something about that. But there are some things that are going to be difficult. And I suppose the challenge is to make sure there are structures and, and support in place to help people manage with those challenges. Well, absolutely. I think we have to recognise that emergency services work is by its very nature going to be potentially exposing uh, to traumatic incidents. Over half of the workforce said that they've had experienced at least one traumatic event that has deeply affected them. So while it's not all day, every day, for people who are in it uh, as a career, which almost everyone is, it's almost inevitable that at some stage you're going to attend a job that doesn't really work out that well where uh, you know, the outcomes are, are negative. And we want people to go into the emergency services who care about their community and uh, want to give back. That's what most people who uh, go into these roles, volunteer or paid uh, uh, do it for. And I think we need to move to a, a point where we can recognise, well, it's human and it's normal to accept that when bad things happen and, you know, the worst things that happen in our community are the things that our emergency services have to go to on a regular basis. It's normal to be affected by that. It's not a sign of weakness. It doesn't mean you're not a resilient person. It doesn't mean that uh, you're a, a problem in some way. It's absolutely normal. And we need to get to that uh, culture where we can say, we need to talk about these things, we need to be open about them, and we need to respect that they are challenges that we have to face in an honest and open way. I agree entirely, David, and I'd love to spend an hour talking to you, actually, and maybe if we can get on to some more episodes in the future, we'll definitely invite you back. But I think that's a very good note to end on. Thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been very, very valuable. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. So it's a very impressive study, isn't it, Nicole? Incredibly rich information has come out of this study and it really has provided so much guidance for clinicians, for organisations about what are the things we need to be focusing on. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many points that we could pick up and have a discussion about. One of them I thought so blindingly obvious really is the extent to which alcohol is used as a coping strategy and I suppose both in military and emergency services traditionally it's been part of the culture perhaps this is how we how we manage this stuff and it's to us maybe at one level it's it's okay but of course it rapidly becomes very counterproductive and it doesn't it's not just about the diagnosable conditions it is often about these subclinical problems such as the alcohol misuse and it was one of the points that David made he said it's not about how much people are drinking, it's that they're using alcohol as a coping mechanism that can be very problematic. Absolutely. Look, there's a number of points that David raised that we will be picking up in future episodes. I think his comment about the unit cohesion is really important. And of course, culture will keep coming up time and time again, I'm sure. I wanted to just move on if I could, Nicole. Uh, we talked a little bit about risk and protective factors or indicators there. And of course, a lot of those are things that happen in the job. But one of the challenges for us, I think, and I'm sure that you must be asked a lot, I know I do, is whether or not we can select people at recruitment who are more likely to be resilient, who are less likely to develop mental health problems. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? It's a great topic to raise, Mark. It definitely is one that gets asked all the time. As soon as you start to see a population where there's an increase in mental health concerns, one of the things that gets asked is, What's going wrong with the screening? Why aren't we screening these people out? Why can't we do a better job with that? 
There's no easy answer to this. And and we know that some organisations do extensive screening, such as police, fire and rescue, military, but we also know there's limitations. Just for example, we know that there are some key factors that should be considered as part of screening, and they are, you know, for example, in the extensive history of adverse childhood events, psychiatric history and, and treatment outcomes, but it's also a job interview. People don't disclose everything. People are seeking to make a good impression. And it's also not as simple as screening out those people who've been exposed to difficult things because for some this will have created resilience and for others it may have created vulnerability. And, of course, people are often recruited when they're pretty young and still maturing and they'll be exposed to things which are difficult and maybe they haven't really been tested in the same ways as they've been growing up. We don't know how they're going to cope with these types of adversities. So just screening people out that we think might have problems in the future is definitely not easy to do. And the other issue, I suppose, is someone was giving this analogy to me a while ago that it's not so difficult when you're recruiting astronauts because you've got 3,000 people for every one position. But in emergency services and the military and so on, we can't afford to just chuck out everybody just on the off chance that they might possibly have a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not many people, for example, not everyone wants to join these types of organisations and commit to them. So, you know, there has to be a certain amount of risk that is taken in terms of whether or not people are the right fit. But that also comes down to training and the values and and the way that an organisation will support them. But also keeping an eye on them as they're going along and seeing if we can identify if the wheels are beginning to fall off at that point, you know, when they are confronting stressful events, how are they dealing with it and so on? Such an important point, you know, that we really need to be taking an ages and stages approach to how we look after mental health for emergency workers. What is important and meaningful and helpful to someone at the beginning of their career um, will be different to what support they need when they're about to become a leader or when they're transitioning out of the role, for example. Um, We need to be thinking of different ways to provide support and advice, um, which helps people to look after their own mental health, helps them to look out for their peers and their mates and helps them to look after the people that they're responsible for and helps families and significant others to look out for the emergency service worker and know where to go and help and and look for help seeking if they're concerned about their loved one. It's so important, isn't it? You made this point in your introduction and David made the point as well, but this idea that it is a whole of career thing, it's a big thing, it's from intake to transition and beyond, but it's also all sorts of areas. And I think we can sometimes perhaps fall into the trap of thinking there's a quick and easy answer. As long as we do this, everything's going to be all right. It's probably not. This is a very complicated question with multiple, multiple parts, yeah. It is really complicated and I think for our listeners as mental health providers. We know that it's complicated. David has just explained how complicated it is. And one of the things that we've been trying to do through Responder Assist is looking at ways we can help clinicians to know what to do. What are the questions I should be asking? What's the assessment? How do I make sure that what I'm doing is what we call culturally competent and appropriate for an emergency service worker. We know that they can be resistant to help seeking and you probably have one, maybe two sessions to get this right. So equipping you with the right information and skills and training and support to do that is incredibly important. We're doing that through various ways, education, community of practice, but also providing a multidisciplinary panel for people who need advice. 
Tremendous. Look, thanks so much, Nicole. So I guess today, really, we've been setting the scene for this podcast series. We've been looking at the kinds of problems that first responders might develop, risk factors and selection challenges and so on. So in the next episode, we're going to go on and look at the three levels of intervention. So what can be done in the workplace, which we call level one? What can primary care offer, which we call level two? And then in the following episode, episode three, we'll look at uh, specialist mental health care. If you want to check out any of the resources that we mentioned here today, and we'll certainly put a link to the Answering the Call report, you want to see biographies of our presenters, just go to the landing page and you'll find links there. You'll also find a link to the feedback survey, and we really would value your feedback. Let us know what you thought about this episode, leave a star rating, provide suggestions about how MHPN can better meet your needs. So I hope you're going to join us for our next episode in this series of Emergency Workers Responder Assist. But for now, I'd like to thank our guest, David Lawrence, and many thanks and goodbye to my magnificent co-host, Nicole Sadler. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Mark. And thank you very much for joining us today and listening to the podcast. So for now, from me, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mental Health in Focus. Stay tuned for more episodes by hitting that subscribe button. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us a rating.